So when you wake up at a later time for a couple of days, you do you induce something called social jet lag, where your body is trying to fix the misalignment between those two drives that comes up on the weekends. And then when the weekday comes back on Monday, it has to unfix it, it has to go back. And so by maintaining consistent wake-up times and bedtimes throughout the course of the week, you actually optimize your chances of keeping those two things in sync. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio. You're in for a treat today. We've got a neuroscientist, Dr. Jeffrey Illiff. And Jeff focuses on neurodegeneration and traumatic brain injury. But in today's episode, we get into sleep and what he calls cognitive longevity, which is the idea of being able to remain in a strong cognitive state way into your old age so that you can continue to be sharp, to access flow, and to think with full capacity into your elder years. And now what Jeff does is tells us how to achieve that, what sort of lifestyle, behavioral things we've got to have in place in order to be optimally set up for having our brains work for us well, well into our old years. And then he also talks about a number of different really novel things around sleep. Some of the really original research he's done that shows that sleep literally cleans your brain. And that is a literal statement. He also talks about social jet lag, the accumulation of sleep debt, and a number of other really important behavioral things to be aware of around sleep and peak performance and flow. So you're in for a treat. I'm excited for you to hear this interview. Now, before we jump into the episode, I want to quickly mention Stephen's new book, The Art of Impossible, which comes out in January. Now, if you've read any of Stephen's books in the past, Bold, Abundance, The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire, and you have craved a how-to section or the idea of being able to ask Stephen as many questions as possible about how to level up your game and achieve consistent, sustained peak performance in your own life, if that has seemed appealing. Well, The Art of Impossible is really Stephen's answer to that question. It's a practical playbook for achieving the impossible with neuroscience-based steps that are locked in and broken down in a way that's going to allow you to apply them right away. So go to theartofimpossible.com. That's theartofimpossible.com. And you will also, if you order the book through theartofimpossible.com, you also get a ton of Amazing bonuses, actually $1,500 worth of cool bonuses, master classes on grit, creativity, learning, and a number of other things. And you get immediate access to those. So you can literally download those as soon as you order it 
right away from theartofimpossible.com. So that's Stephen's new book, The Art of Impossible. You're going to love it. And if you want to order it, that's theartofimpossible.com. Now let's jump into the show. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, Jeffrey, great to have you here. Welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey, nice to be with you, Ring. Yeah, appreciate you joining us today. So to kick it off, I want to ask you known for when it comes to your, your work and your research. Yeah, so I'm a neuroscientist by training with a background in vascular physiology. So my work focuses on how blood vessels in the brain interact with the brain itself and how they work together to maintain normal brain function. What we're probably best known for is for defining the anatomy and function of what has been termed the glymphatic system, which is, you can think about it as the brain's waste clearance system that seems to become engaged mainly during sleep. So let's just dive straight into the sleep topic and we'll we'll go more broad from there. But you mentioned the glymphatic system. Can you describe to folks a little bit what happens during sleep as far as kind of cognitive cleanup, so to speak? Sure. So I think what I do is I take a little bit of a step back and maybe give people a little bit of a physiology overview. So I think most everyone has heard of the lymphatic system. So in all the tissues in your body, so in your muscles, in your kidney, in all of your organs, you have two different sets of vessels. You have blood vessels that provide nutrients like oxygen and glucose and everything else from the blood to your body's cells. Your cells produce waste. All of them do. They produce carbon dioxide. They produce all sorts of other solutes and molecules that have to be gotten rid of. And those molecules end up in the spaces between your body's cells. And it's your lymphatic vasculature, your lymph vessels, whose main job it is to clear away those wastes that accumulate in the spaces between your body's cells. Now, one thing that we've known for really a long time, since you know the 1800s, is that the brain seems to lack those lymphatic vessels. Now, there's a little bit of a caveat that maybe we'll get into later on about that, but the same waste clearance system that the rest of the body has, brain tissue itself seems to lack, which is Weird, because when you think about the brain, it's one of the most metabolically active organs. It consumes huge amounts of energy. It produces a commensurate amount of waste, and yet it's exquisitely sensitive. So it had the, for the neurons to fire and for networks to function properly, it has to exist within these very narrow tolerances, and yet it lacks this waste disposal system that the rest of the body has. And so what we discovered initially in 2012 was that the brain uses the fluid that it floats in. So the brain is surrounded by this pool of fluid called cerebral spinal fluid. It actually repurposes that fluid and using the architecture of the blood vessels of the brain, it uses those to sort of route fluid into and through the brain tissue, clearing away wastes and essentially getting rid of them. In the same way that the body uses lymphatic vessels, the brain uses this fluid routed along the outsides of blood vessels. In 2013, we reported that that process, initially we thought that it would probably be happening you know, all the time. So you know, whenever you're active, your brain must be clearing away the waste that, that it's producing. But actually what, it, what turns out to be the case is that during waking and during normal activity, that process seems to be muted. 
it seems to be largely turned off. But then when you shift into sleep, that process begins. So the brain has essentially sequestered waking and activity type activities with this kind of housekeeping function that seems to occur mainly during sleep. Wow, super, super interesting. What are the implications of that function for cognitive performance and the kinds of things that you know we would experience directly in terms of our ability to focus or hold attention or those kinds of things? So I think it has a couple of different implications. So one is just by way of explanation. We know based on our experience that when you don't sleep, there's a certain slowness or fogginess that comes that comes around the next day. Or if you have, you know, a week where you're not sleeping well, you know, your function in the workplace, your function in your home just isn't optimal. And we know that people who have chronically disrupted sleep, like shift workers or medical residents who are in training or people who are on long-term deployments in the military, we know that those chronic states of sleep disruption have an impact on their cognitive function. But the question of the biological explanation for why that is um, has remained a little bit unclear. Um, there's some suggestion that it has to do with the process of you know, synaptic formation and elimination, something called synaptic scaling. But this data suggests that one of the things that accounts for that restorative function of sleep is this role in clearing away the waste that are accumulating through the course of the day needing to be cleaned away at night. And if you don't do that, then that leaves sort of a functional residue that's detectable the next day as changes in performance. Mm. It's interesting in terms of the behavioral implications of knowing this. Well, I think at least just knowing that mechanism makes getting sleep more compelling. Yeah. <laughs> feel yeah. definitely like a larger necessity. But is there anything else behaviorally that we should do or that we now know we should do differently as a result of having found this out? Yeah. So I think day to day, you know, when you think about motivation, I think there's an emerging sense, especially among people who are health and performance conscious, that sleep is probably one of several factors like fitness, like nutrition, like recovery that are important parts of being just functional right? And being active. So I think there's a sense in which we understand that, as I mentioned, based on our own experience. And so having a biological explanation for that, maybe that's useful. There's some additional pieces, though, that we've learned from the neuroscience of it that maybe tell us a little bit more on how we should handle it today and tomorrow, and maybe a little bit more about how we should think about it over you know, the next five years, the next 20 years. So one of the things that we found is that this clearance, this brainwashing, um, not the cult-like brainwashing, but more the, the healthy brainwashing, right? It seems to be driven both by the sleep-wake cycle and by the circadian cycle. And your uh, listeners and your clients may not know, or maybe they do, that sleep is actually re regulated by two different processes, right? So one is what's called the homeostatic sleep drive, and the other is called the circadian sleep drive. They in best practice, though, they align with each other and they work together. When they don't work together, you get, you know, strange things start to happen, things like jet lag. So the homeostatic sleep drive is the building up of pressure to sleep the longer you're awake. So it's this building of what's called sleep pressure that once you go to sleep dissipates. And then 
if you don't sleep, so if you, you know, if you're awake for 17 hours or 24 hours or 28 hours or 36 hours, you incur what's known as a sleep debt. And that sleep debt is thought to have both a molecular uh, sort of chemical basis, meaning there's, there are substances in the brain that accumulate with waking that should be gotten rid of that aren't gotten rid of. They're called sleep substances. And they have an effect on the function of brain networks. And that's part of the reason why over prolonged periods of wakefulness, attention changes, memory changes, and network function changes, right? And that those sleep substances dissipate with sleep, right? It also has an electrophysiological component, meaning you can detect um, with changes in different frequency bands on an EEG, that accumulation of sleep debt, and then its dissipation with sleep. So the initial study in 2013 suggested that that homeostatic sleep drive, whether you're asleep or whether you're awake, seems to be regulating what's called glymphatic clearance or this, this sort of brainwashing. A study that was actually published, um, it was probably only about two months ago, out of uh, the same group in New York where we did this work initially, showed that this process is also under circadian regulation. Now, circadian regulation is the rhythm it's actually entrained by a little part of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that sort of gets your brain turned on and ready to function during waking and then sort of gets it ready to go to sleep in preparation for sleep. It's entrained to the light-dark cycle, right? So it's supposed to sort of cue to when the sun comes up and it's supposed to cue to when the sun comes down. In an ideal world, your homeostatic sleep drive, so the time, that the thing that makes you get more and more tired the longer you're awake, and your circadian cycle, which keeps you awake during daytime hours and puts you to sleep during the night, they are supposed to be in phase with each other, They're supposed to be locked with each other. But when they get screwed up against each other, you end up with problems with sleep because you, they end up working against each other. An example of that is jet lag. So if I fly to London... It takes about an hour a day for my circadian cycle to catch up with the new light-dark cycle that I live in or that I exist in. But the problem is my body knows that it's been awake for 16 hours or 18 hours or 24 hours. And so I, my body, on the one hand, might be trying to keep me awake or put me to sleep, depending on how long I've been up. But my circadian clock is saying, no, no, no. It's supposed to be daylight right now, so I'm keeping you up. Or no, 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 it's supposed to be nighttime right now, so I'm getting you ready to go to sleep. So that misalignment between your homeostatic drive and your circadian drive is important to normal sleep health, but also can create sleep problems. So the fact that this cleaning is under the regulation of both suggests that if you want to optimize this cleaning function, one of the ways that you would do that is by optimizing the alignment of your normal sleep-wake cycle to your normal circadian cycle and making sure that that's consistent. Oh, that's super interesting. So a couple of questions there. First thing it would be, how do you do that? How do you align those two systems, the homeostatic drive and uh, circadian? So the simplest answer on how you align them is, is, is through consistency, right? So the circadian drive is entrained to a, a very nearly 24-hour period, and then it's sort of modulated a little bit by different light inputs, right? So it changes a little bit through the course of winter when days are shorter and summer when days are longer. But the key is it entrains into, it's literally a rhythm, right? And so one of the things that you can do is making sure that you're 
you're going to bed at the same time every single day, and you're waking up at the same time every single day. Now, the latter of those is pretty simple for most of us. I think most of us have, you know, a consistent wake up time um, on weekday mornings, at least, you know, it could be 5am or 6am or 8am or whatever. What's a little bit less common for us is to have a consistent bedtime. You know, it's something we had when we were eight years old, but it's not necessarily something you have when you're 40 years old. By having a consistent bedtime, maybe even with an alarm, just like you would have for waking up, and a consistent wake-up time, it gives your body that the best chance for entraining to that natural rhythm. It's also sort of natural for us during the work week, you know, maybe Monday through Friday or Saturday, you know, you wake up early, maybe you go to bed late, and then on the weekends, you sleep in. So your normal wake-up time might be 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. on the weekdays, and then on Saturday and Sunday, you sleep in until 8 or 9. Well, when you do that, when you sleep in three or four hours later on a weekend, you're actually telling your body, it's, it's almost like you're telling your body that you move to the U.S. East Coast, but only for two days. And then on Monday, you go back to the West Coast. And then on Saturday, you go back to the East Coast. So when you wake up at a later time for a couple of days, you, do, you induce something called social jet lag, where your body is trying to fix the misalignment between those two drives that comes up on the weekends. And then when the weekday comes back on Monday, it has to unfix it, it has to go back. And so by maintaining consistent wake up times and bedtimes throughout the course of the week, you actually optimize your chances of keeping those two things in sync with one another. That makes a ton of sense. I love the idea of a bedtime alarm. And I think that just in general, from observing our clients, for example, people drastically underestimate the importance of consistency with timing when it comes to sleep uh, and they over index on hours and things like that and underestimate that effect so with respect to these two systems that are regulating sleep kind of an interesting state especially folks struggling with burnout where they are tired often extremely tired but not sleepy and are having challenges falling asleep. And obviously, in many respects, that's what happens with things like insomnia. But is that is the thing that's driving that sense of fatigue without, you know, sleepiness? And I think it's interesting to distinguish between those two states. Is that some kind of a dysregulation in, in those two mechanisms? Or Yeah, it, it can be. So if you, if you think about those processes, down underneath those processes are neurons and neurotransmitters doing different things. And in optimal physiology, these things are supposed to function together, right? There's a neurotransmitter system in the brain called the noradrenergic system or norepinephrine or noradrenaline if you're on the European side of the pond. So there's a particular center of the brain called the locus ceruleus, which is pretty much the sole source for norepinephrine within the brain. And that it's a little tiny center sort of down in the, in the back bottom of the brain. And it sends all of these fibers up through the rest of the brain. And that center, that noradrenergic center, one of its key jobs is arousal, right? So during the day when I'm awake and kind of paying attention, it's kind of pulsing at a certain rate. And then if something happens, so if I'm, I'm sitting in this room and all of a sudden someone jumps out of a room at me, all of a sudden, it goes from pulsing to firing really fast. It's called phasic firing. That same chemical that sort of keeps me aware is also importantly involved in 
helping me to refocus my attention to something that has become very salient very quickly, right? Now, normally, as you move toward when you're supposed to sleep, as you, as you sort of uh, move toward bedtime and as you're moving into sleep, that pulsing firing of that center is supposed to turn off. So it's supposed to like largely shut down during most of the phases of sleep. And so, you know, when your circadian rhythm is aligned, when you're able to de-stress and sort of decompress properly, that thing shuts down. One of the things that you see in, in sort of an extreme case, so take a veteran, a combat veteran, who is exposed to combat trauma and now has PTSD and intrusive nightmares that are bringing a very salient, very stressful situation back into their dreaming life on a regular basis in such a way that they basically makes it impossible for them to sleep. Interestingly, one of the drugs that seems to be clinically effective in treating that is something called prazosin, which is a drug that blocks that noradrenergic activity within the brain, right? So one thought is that what's happening in these people, in these veterans, is this hyperarousal, which is totally adaptive in a combat situation, becomes a permanent thing, right? And one of the ways that you can combat that is by blocking this aberrant noradrenergic tone within the brain, essentially shutting it down and allowing you to sleep normally and getting control of those nightmares. So that drug has the effect in these veterans of not just improving trauma-associated nightmares, but also improving sleep more generally, right? And so when you talk about a feeling of fatigue that also comes with sort of a sleeplessness and an anxiety or sort of an inability to quiet your mind, a misalignment between neurotransmitter systems that are supposed to arouse you and get you ready because you're thinking about things or uh, the stress of your life, which may not be combat stress, but it may be just as salient to a lot of us, right? The stress of your kids, the stress of your job, the stress of your marriage, those things can keep you aroused at times when it should be shut down. And so the inability to sort of turn off that system uh, may be creating some of that problem. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So you, yeah, you've essentially, you've got conflicting drivers at play at once, which is creating that kind of that in-between state that no one wants to be in. I don't know if you've seen any any direct research on sleep and the impact of it on flow or, or ability to get into flow. So I'm curious as to whether or not you have, and if not, I'm curious as to what your hypotheses or thoughts would be around the impact of sleep and sleep quality on flow. Or, I mean, we can also go to cognitive performance more broadly. Yeah, I think more about cognitive performance more broadly, right? So the effects of sleep disruption on cognitive performance, it's, it, you know, the scientific literature goes back decades and decades and decades. So it's, it's actually one of the most strongly established findings in neuroscience that, that you're going to find. So the effects of either frank sleep deprivation, so not letting a person sleep at all overnight or over a couple of nights, or even sleep restriction. So, you know, not keeping you up all night, but rather only allowing you to sleep six instead of eight hours and only allowing you to sleep six instead of eight hours for two days or 14 days or 30 days um, has a pretty corrosive effect across a wide spectrum of cognitive domains, right? So from memory to executive function to motor coordination, 
it sort of spans the gamut. Um, I saw an interesting st- uh, statistic in a review that I was reading, and it said that after 10 hours of continuous wakefulness, so this morning I got up at 6, so starting at about you know 4 o'clock in the afternoon, every hour after 4 o'clock is about the same as increasing my blood alcohol level by 0.005, which maybe sound, you know, is fine if we're talking about you know, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m., but come 4 a.m. or come tomorrow at you know, 10 a.m., you're talking about some pretty substantial levels of, of impairment. And it's not just in you know, my ability to like, drive a car. It goes to my ability to write creatively or make good decisions or have proper emotional regulation when I'm dealing with my employees or you know, working with the people around me. It's a pretty striking statistic, and I think it's an interesting framework for thinking about that cumulative effect of, of sleep debt that, uh, and its broad effects across cognitive domains. Hey there, Rian Darst here again. Sorry to interrupt for a quick moment. I wanted to remind you that if you want to pre-order Stephen's new book, theartofimpossible.com, we have over $1,500 worth of peak performance bonuses that you can access immediately. They will get dropped straight into your inbox just for the price of the book, which is about 30 bucks. So it's a really, really super deal. And it's theartofimpossible.com to claim the bonuses. The bonuses include all sorts of cool things like secret chapters from Stephen's past books that he never ended up releasing. They include an impossible goal setting masterclass, how to set goals the right way. They include a course on mitigating distraction and maximizing attention to accelerate into flow and much more. So you're going to love the bonuses. Go to theartofimpossible.com or click the link in the show notes and you can check out and get them dropped straight into your inbox. Alrighty, back to the episode. It's a powerful analogy or metaphor also in terms of hammering home the importance of sleep, the idea that, you know, pretty quickly with a lack of sleep, you are getting into essentially drunken territory from a... Yeah. Another interesting thing that was from the same paper was that when I talk to my friends who, you know, people who are my age, you know, we're in our, in our mid-40s right now, a lot of us have gotten to places in our careers where, you know, we're in charge of things or you're in charge of people, or you're sort of at this synthetic creative moment where we're both young enough to be active, but also old enough to kind of get, you know, know the landscape well. Um, and so there's this feeling that you're in your prime of life. And a lot of us don't necessarily sleep a lot. Sleep is sort of the one compressible part of the day. You know, when I look at the demands of my career, the demands of my marriage, the demands of my kids, the demands of like any hobby I happen to actually want to have, like the one thing I can do is I can, you know, I can go to bed at midnight instead of 10. Um, I can go to bed, you know, if if I have a project I need to get done tomorrow, I can stay up till one and I can wake up at four. And the fact is we do that regularly. And many people, you know, I think it's very common among executives and among sort of high level professionals, you know, to sleep five to six hours a night rather than seven to nine hours a night. I would say that that's pretty common. Data suggests that sleeping for two weeks at six hours a night has roughly the same effects on cognitive function in a person who would normally sleep seven to nine hours as being completely sleep deprived overnight, right? So you think six hours 
yeah, maybe it's not so bad. I'm get at least I'm getting some sleep. But if you sort of add it up over day after day after day after day after day, there's this corrosive effect of long-term sleep restriction that you might not notice. But if you sort of measure it objectively, it's it's actually fairly substantial, and it's probably more than you might think. So is that essentially the inverse of the whole sleep as a bank myth? You know that idea that I believe is untrue, which is that you can you know get ten hours or twelve hours sleep and then rock it on you know five or six for a few nights after because you build up stores. But it sounds like the opposite. That's not true, but the opposite of that is true. That it accrues yeah, in the a, negative. I think. There is a sense in which you can pay back sleep over it, – it's more like a payday loan than it is like a mortgage. So there's a sense in which if I stay up all night and then I lay down at 6 a.m., I actually go into something called recovery sleep, which is where I transition very quickly into a very deep phase of sleep for a long time. So there is a sense in which your body knows when it's in deep sleep debt, it sort of takes thing, thing matters into its own hands to try to repay that as much as possible. Now, just because your body adapts in that way doesn't mean that's physiologically the same or the long-term consequences aren't bad, right? So while that's your body trying to sort of make up for lost time, the notion that a week's worth of sleep gotten over the course of a week at the expense of what you're doing during, uh, you know, with short sleep during the week and long sleep on the weekends, they're not the same. It's not the same as getting the same amount of sleep every night. More importantly, what we're starting to see is that the consequences of disrupted sleep may not, everything we've been talking about up to this point has been focused on how I feel tomorrow, how I feel next week, but we're starting to understand that the consequences for disrupted sleep, especially chronically disrupted sleep, may not be restricted to these acute time frames. It may not be restricted to days to weeks, but the implications may actually stretch out for years and decades. And that's something that I think new research is starting to suggest that, um, especially people who are in middle age right now and who are thinking a lot, thinking about the consequences of sleep and thinking about what you want to be like when you're 80 years old, now that our parents are sort of in that age bracket, and we're starting to deal with you know our, our parents and aunts and uncles struggling with dementia or Parkinson's disease, or, or these sort of conditions of aging, we need to start thinking about what the, those long-term consequences of sleep are. So let's get into that topic then of cognitive sustainability. Can you firstly tell us what, what that phrase refers to, cognitive sustainability? Yeah, it, it's sort of um, a mishmash of two trendy words that may or may not mean anything together, right? So it's the notion that Everyone wants to function well tomorrow, but as we increasingly, A, understand and appreciate the impact that dementing diseases are having in our day-to-day lives, so I think that the odds are most everyone in your audience either has someone in their immediate or extended family who struggles with a dementing disorder that's incredibly common, or you have a close friend that does, right? As we're living longer, these dementing diseases of the aging brain are becoming more and more important to us. And as sort of old age becomes this protracted period in our lives, how we want to spend that age starts to matter more and more. So if you think of the sort of the model of the sort of the middle century America was, you know, we're going to work hard, we're going to smoke a lot of cigarettes, and when we're 60, we're all going to die of a heart attack very suddenly. 
And this notion of this protracted old age, you know, this time between when you're 60 and when you're 80 or even 90, it didn't exist so much. It didn't exist from a, in that our medical system didn't have to deal with that. Our family structures didn't have to deal with that. Our social security system wasn't built necessarily to manage these protracted periods of, of retirement and old age. But now that pretty much all of us expect to live to be 70, 80, or even 90 years old, we start to think a lot about how we want to live. You know, everyone has this, this idealized vision of, you know, your grandmother who's 89 years old and drinks a pint of whiskey every single day and is sharp as a tack. And there's an increasing number of people who move into old age cognitively intact who are sharp and who are independent and who are physically robust and not frail. But there is actually a very large number of people who move out into those ages without those markings of robustness. So you see frailty, especially physical frailty of like of weak bones, right? In osteoporosis in, a, in aging women. You see this creeping burden of dementia. So incidence of dementia doubles about every five years over the age of 65 to the point where among people over the age of 85, incidence of dementia is about 40%, right? So that means... You know, if you look at your group of friends or your group of coworkers, a group of 10 of you, if all 10 of you expect to live over the age of 85, four of the 10 of you will likely be demented in that period. That's a crazy number, right? And now that we're starting to experience sort of first or second hand, what that looks like with this horrible destruction of self and memory and engagement with you know family and the world around you that we see in our parents and in our grandparents and the the massive familial and relational cost that that has to us we start to ask the question of okay if i'm going to live 40 more years do i want 20 of those 40 to be spent like that or is there something that i can do now that's going to change that and so we start to think about not just the brain that we have today and tomorrow and this week, but we start to think about the brain that we want to have in 20 years, in 30 years, and in 40 years. And there's an emerging body of medical evidence, clinical evidence, that suggests that the processes underlying diseases, like Alzheimer's disease, are probably being laid down, not when they're 60 or 70, but are probably starting when you're probably 40, 50, 40 or 50. So we think of dementia as being a disease of the old. And that's, that's where we see when people are diagnosed with the dementia, by and large, with, with a few rare sort of genetically driven examples, it's almost always people over the age of 65. But we now know that the pathology within the brain that appears to underlie diseases like Alzheimer's, when we survey people who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, we see that it's actually starting when people are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. And the cognitive symptoms, the cognitive decline that is the feature of that disease, manifests itself 15 or 20 years later. When you look at risk factors for developing these dementing disorders, it turns out that there's common risk factors with heart disease. So hyperlipidemia, so um, having the wrong balance of lipids within your blood, seems to be a risk factor. Hypertension seems to be a risk factor. Prior exposure to head injuries, so concussions, seems to be a risk factor for the development of dementia. Sleep disruption is now increasingly regarded as a risk factor for dementia. 
But it isn't the hyperlipidemia and the hypertension and the sleep disruption when you're 60 that seems to be the, the thing that predicts whether you'll become demented or not. It's actually what you had when you were 40 or 50 years old. So what that says is your lifestyle choices in middle age are actually part of the determining factor for how your brain is going to age for the next 20 years and whether you're going to be more or less likely to develop one of these conditions. Super important for people to be aware of. Hopefully most people who are listening are 40 or 50. It's not too late. <laughs> um, but and it's a great it's a great point. I mean, I think just from a broader perspective, really building the mindset around the idea that there is a distinction that's significant and that you can make more significant between chronological age and biological age is, is really, really important. And obviously this is a way to, you know, in, in some respects, extend your biological age, at least past what, you know, maybe the average profile looks like through behavioral interventions. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, beginning in the seventies with a fitness and gym movement, moving forward through the nineties with uh, an increasing focus on nutrition, there has been a focus on movement and strength and cardiovascular health in maintaining function late into life. And, and, and rightly so, right? So the, I think the gains in our understanding of heart disease and its causes and how we prevent it and the gains that come from, you know, the democratization of fitness through aggressive treatment of hypertension and aggressive treatment of the bad kinds of lipids in your blood have made massive gains in preventing people from dying from heart attacks and strokes and things like that, right? But the focus has tended to be on your musculoskeletal cardiovascular body to the exclusion of thinking about what is, you know, it's one thing to make sure that my back stays healthy so that I'm not, you know, laid up with, a, with, with my back out of position half the time as I get older. But we also probably need to be thinking about sustaining our brain in much the same way. The good news is that some of those cardiovascular things, exercise and diet, are probably influencing brain health as well in towards sustainability. But it appears that sleep is not uniquely beneficial to the brain. It's also been beneficial to other parts of, of your body, but it is an important part of maintaining brain health over the course of your lifetime and sort of extending that concept of health span, right? So the notion of, you know, I'm not just alive, but I'm actually thriving. I'm not just here on earth when I'm actually able to engage creatively and productively in the activities that I love and that I value, not just today, but also tomorrow. What behaviors or habits do you have personally that most contribute to cognitive sustainability or that you know that you want or are hoping will con contribute to cognitive sustainability that you that you most cherish or view as most crucial so i think a couple we published the, these initial studies in 2012 and 2013 so almost 10 years ago and i was in my sort of mid 30s at a point in my training when we worked very long hours, you know, um, sort of, it was sort of like being a medical resident where you're working, you know, 80, hundred hours a week. And that, that was sort of expected, right? That, and that was, that was what you had to do. And I remember doing, um, these interviews with, uh, members of the press where they would say, oh, well, since you know that sleep is so important for this reason, you must have changed your sleep habits, right? And the reality is that as we mentioned before, sleep is the compressible part of the day. If I take time away from my kids, like that's time I don't get back. 
if I take time out of the gym, I see the I see and feel the effects like every day, right? If I take time away from work, there's an obvious connection to sort of how things go, right? And so for me, not sleeping was a normal part of my life because it had to be to because to be successful, you you know that's sort of the price you have to pay. And I had a friend who was a she was a sleep psychologist at UCLA, and she told me, you know, hey, why don't you do an experiment? Because I, I thought I was functioning just fine on five or six hours of sleep a night. And she said, just try this. Take two weeks, set an alarm, and go to bed at 11 and wake up at uh, 6. Or go to bed at 10 and wake up at 5. Whenever you got to wake up, set it so that you get seven hours of sleep a night for two weeks. Do like an experiment, right? No commitment. You know, this isn't, you know, turning over a new leaf. Just try it out and see how you feel at the end of that two weeks of doing that consistently for 14 days. And that has made, I think, the single biggest effect on my general quality of life of actually not taking my own advice, but actually being willing to take the advice of someone I know who looked at me and said, what the heck are you doing? Like, aren't you reading your own papers? You know, like, just do the thing. And it made a big impact. A second thing, piece of cognitive sustainability that is less obvious, I think, to people is something called cognitive reserve. If I tell you that cardiovascular health helps the brain, you'll say, of course it does. If I say nutrition helps the brain, you'll say, of course it does. And if I even tell you sleep helps the brain, you'll say, of course it does. But what about church attendance? What about being a part of a club? What about learning an extra language? So there's been a number of studies in aging populations that suggest that there is something called cognitive reserve, which seems to give some sort of resistance of the brain to the development of pathology. So it doesn't change how much pathology is being made, but what it does do is it makes the brain resistant to the effects of that pathology. And what the data suggests are the substrates of cognitive reserve are things like education. So people with college educations compared to high school compared to not completing high school have lower rates of dementia. It has to do with occupational attainment. So people who have higher levels of occupational attainment have lower rates of dementia. Uh, It has to do with social engagement. So people who go to church or to synagogue or any sort of sort of uh, faith community, it doesn't sort of focus on one or another, but they have lower rates of dementia. People who are a part of social groups, so think of, you know, the Elks or a Knitting Circle or, you know, or whatever it is, you know, I, th- I think our, our modern versions of those things are changing. But people who have dynamic and complex networks of friends and connections that are deep actually seem to be protected against the development of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And what the thought is, is that people who have this greater exposure to learning, greater exposure to dynamic and complex social interaction, they probably have more robust networks within their brain so that when the pathology begins and it starts eating away at capacity, they have more to spare. Whereas people who, you know, have narrower lives, who spend their days, you know, they come home from work and they watch television for the entire afternoon, or the modern version of that is, I suppose, YouTube, right? There's a lack of that reserve. And so those people are going to face that increasing pathology differently. So things that you can do to build that reserve. So what we don't know is whether you can build more reserve. 
We just know that if you were educated more, if you have these complex social in, uh, interactions, you seem to be protected. But can you actually build reserve, you know, over the age of 20 or 30 or 40? We don't know. But is it worth learning piano? Is it worth learning a new, uh, learning new language? Is it worth starting to travel? Is it worth like investing in people around you as opposed to, you know, being focused only on the tasks that you're doing? Like those are things that I think are worth investing in. And that's something that I think I was less aware of previously. And that's something that, you know, my wife started actually taking piano lessons, even though we're sort of at middle age, not to be good at piano, but more because she wanted to keep learning things, you know? And for me, like maintaining deep relationships with other people is really important. And I think is probably going to be important for maintaining that cognitive sustainability long-term. That makes total sense. That's super interesting. And you're, you know, very right that intuitively we tend to view those things as a little bit, I don't know, a little bit squidgier or softer or less, you yeah. know, tangibly impactful, but obviously that's not necessarily the case. So love that. Before I ask you our final question, which is our, our research genie question, which I'll ask you in a moment, anything else that you would recommend to folks out there who are listening to this and thinking, you know, I want to have as high a performing brain as possible when I'm 80 or 90 or beyond Anything else you recommend those those folks do? So the the funny thing about it is it's everything that your grandma told you, right? So it's you know it's drink plenty of water, uh, exercise regularly, don't be stressed out. Smoking and heavy drinking probably aren't a great plan. Uh, you know, being active, uh, having friends and relationships, like those are things that seem to be uh, seem to counter the corrosive influence of this pathology on your cognition with age. And I think all of us probably, if I, if I give you a quiz, like, which of these are good, all of them are probably, you know, you'd probably say they're all good. And the, the thing about them is, are any of them, what's the risk of any of them? So the data on whether improving sleep can actually prevent the development of Alzheimer's disease, actually, we don't know yet. All we know is people who sleep less seem to get it more. We don't know if we change it, whether you can actually change the course. But do you really think that your life is going to be worse if you sleep more and better? Like, do you really think that that's true? And so what's the downside? I love also the way you describe sleep as the compressible part of the day. Making it not compressible is a, is a pretty big shift. I think making it fixed and, and trying to view it as a fixed block uh, to as much of an extent as possible, I think obviously it will make a big difference on that front. So our research journey question we'd love to ask all, all researchers and scientists like yourself is if you could answer any, any question and have all of the research, whatever that may be, done to answer that question for you at the click of a finger, what would that question be? So I think my answer is going to be super nerdy. Uh, so I'll give you that caveat. This brainwashing that I've been talking about, this glymphatic function, seems to be connected with, of all the phases of sleep, probably slow wave sleep, which is the deep part of sleep. Interestingly, as you age, we know that you sleep less and there's a particular rarefication of slow wave sleep as you age, and in particular in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. So there seems to be this important connection with slow wave sleep. I wanna know why those are connected. Why is fluid movement through the brain connected to slow wave sleep? I have an, a, a hypothesis that's based on a, a really interesting study that came out of Boston uh, this last summer. In this study, what they showed was that individual slow waves in the brain, so these slow waves are electrical events that go about every second or so, 
they seem to be connected to fluid movement around the brain, um, and they were tightly coupled to each other through changes in blood vessels. It was a, it was a super interesting study that was published in, in, in science earlier in the year. I want to know, if I zoom in at the level of individual cells within the brain, if I'm just standing there between the cells, and as an electrical slow wave goes by me, what I think may be happening is that as the slow wave goes by, the cells are actually swelling, squishing the space between them and moving the water out from in between them, right? And as it, it's sort of, you can think of it almost like a, an otter pop, you know, when you, uh, when you grab the end and squeeze it and squeeze the fluid up into your mouth. I want to know if slow waves are essentially squeezing the spaces between the brain cells like an otter pop and move tractoring fluid through them that way, and, the, and whether there's a sort of electrical to mechanical coupling. Because I think if that's true, that's a super cool way to do things in terms of just like, wow, the brain's amazing. Um, but it also tells us, hey, we really need to focus on slow-wave sleep as a target and f- maybe think of some clever ways to not just improve sleep generally, but actually specifically try to improve slow-wave sleep. That's super interesting. I love the autopop analogy. That uh, definitely brings it home. So where, Jeffrey, where can, where can people find out more about you and support the, the great work you've been doing? So I'm at the University of Washington uh, School of Medicine in Seattle in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and in Neurology. Uh, we have a lab website. It's uh, iliflab.com. It's not a very original name. And that's where you can read about what we're doing. Um, I have a Twitter handle, which uh, I find that the amount of tweeting that I do is inversely proportional to my research productivity. So I am only on there occasionally, uh, but it's at Jeffrey Iliff, um is my handle. So that's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-I-L-I-F-F. Uh, so you can probably keep up with us there. Um, but other than that, um, you know, if you're searching on Alzheimer's disease and sleep, you'll see what we're doing. And I, would, I think there's going to be some interesting things coming out this year and in the, in the next couple of years. So it's, it's a subject and a topic worth uh, keeping your eyes open for. Super. Well, thank you so much, boss. It was great to, to get a download of all your wisdom and uh, really helpful. Very good. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.